0: Good to see everybody. Uh, Please keep praying uh, for our folks at Majnik. We have uh, five students and nine uh, adults. This is middle school uh, Majnik, and uh, that's the middle school retreat. They're there with several other churches, and so it's a much bigger group. And uh, I know some folks are posting pictures of what's going on, and um, apparently they're having more fun than I am. So. Turn with me to Philippians chapter one. So this is our third week in the book of Philippians. And we uh, will be reading verses 18 through 26, actually the second part of uh, the last part of verse 18 uh, through verse 26. So please listen carefully as this is uh, God's word. Yes, and I will rejoice. You may have ample cause to glory in christ jesus because of my coming to you again the word of the lord thanks be to god let's pray heavenly father this is your word and uh, we need it more than ever thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people lord today we come once again to this amazing book written by the apostle paul so we pray that we would learn from you today that we will learn how to focus our attention on others before ourselves, that we would learn the meaning of what it means to say to live is Christ and to die is gain and teach us how to put that way of thinking into daily practice. Thank you that once again, we're learning from the inspired words of the Apostle Paul, help us to hear them, understand them, believe them and obey them. And so we pray, speak now through Philippians 1, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Get well soon. What used to be a greeting card is now a philosophy of life. In the past, people went to the doctor, to the hospital, when they were sick. These days, they're as likely to pursue wellness even when they're not ill, say by spending a weekend at the spa. Everyone wants to be well, of course, it's a good thing to want to be healthy, get in shape, eat right. Um, You know, one of the first thing language students learn uh, to say is, how are you? And it's a concern um, that we see in the Bible as well. When Jacob traveled to visit his uncle, in Genesis 29, the first thing he asked when he arrived was, is it well with him? The Hebrew term behind well is shalom. um, One of the important terms, uh, most important terms in the Old Testament, it occurs over 200 times. Now it can apply to individuals or to groups and it connotes uh, peace, soundness, harmony, completeness. it's often translated as peace, but it's not simply the absence of conflict, but something more positive. It means uh, as a greater meaning of wholeness. So, to wish someone well is to express concern for their overall welfare. We also find references to being well in the New Testament. Uh, there was a woman in Matthew 9, suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years and kind of snuck up behind Jesus to touch his garment. And she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And she was. But the term that Matthew uses here is a different term, it's sozo, which means to save. So in the New Testament, context helps us to determine which sense of the term is in view, the physical or the spiritual. So analysis of the role of wellness Uh, not just in the bible but in our world in contemporary society leads us to see that we've moved well beyond the biblical picture of completeness or wholeness we have moved beyond people just wanting to be healthy and to eat right and to get in shape wellness uh, in our day has become something of a national obsession and actually has moved into the point where there's people who worship wellness Um, and it's something of a big business. A handful of scholars have suggested that the pursuit of wellness is what defines our present age, that the Protestant work ethic has been replaced with the workout ethic. Um, Now the English term wellness uh, originally simply meant the opposite of illness and it dates all the way back to the 1650s. However, it's only been in really the last 20 years that wellness has entered our social vocabulary, our collective consciousness, uh, to the point where even several American universities now encourage new students to sign wellness contracts when they arrive on campus. Now, as with many things, if you want to know what fuels the present day social understanding of wellness, you have to follow the money. Global wellness fuels an estimated $3.7 trillion economy, or to put it in comparison, that's three times larger than the global pharmaceutical industry. In fact, the World Health Organization now defines wellness, and I was amazed at this definition, as a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being. I wonder how many people would meet that definition of complete physical, mental, and social well-being. So now the wellness movement has garnered its share of critics. Uh, What is the good news of the wellness movement? That you can make yourself well, literally save yourself by following this or that. A program and to the extent that it's become an ideal picture that orients people's hopes and lives, encourages self-help, salvation, wellness has become an American idol, a new false gospel. Now, the most prominent critic is a woman named Barbara Ehrenreich, and she refers to the epidemic of wellness. It's part of the title of her book, Natural Causes, an epidemic of wellness, the certainty of dying, and killing ourselves to live longer. And uh, the book is part cultural history and part social critique. And her aim is to identify what she calls a toxin, or this thing that's infected the American imagination, leading us to believe the fantasy that we can overcome the ravages of sickness and death through medical technology and preventive medicine. And again, not against medical technology or preventive medicine, but the reality is everybody's gonna die and we have yet to come up with a way to keep that from happening. And so in Aaron Ehrenreich's account, she says, Americans are sheep who follow and pay for every trend that promises wellness and eternal life. And, uh, She lists a whole bunch of ways they're doing that, and some of them are pretty bizarre. It's not just a matter of getting in shape and eating right. There's people that are trying to change their DNA and do all sorts of bizarre things, and I'm not gonna list them out here. And she says this is a problem, uh, and her short answer is simple biology. Now, it's Dr. Ehrenreich. She has a PhD in cellular immunology. Not even totally sure what that is. But she says, ultimately, our bodies will defy our control. We can neither will ourselves to grow taller nor to live longer. And while she says there are certain bad choices you can make that can shorten your life, but even those who make all good choices if such a person exists will eventually die. And in her opinion, the wellness industry uh, caters to rich people who can afford to be narcissists. I think she's way too optimistic, as lots of middle-class Americans are buying into what she calls the cult of the body and the culture of wellness at all costs. And she says they're in danger of denying reality, namely that our bodies have limits and our death is unavoidable. And so she calls out, she actually uses this phrase, the wellness Pharisee who display a self-righteous superiority towards those who don't participate in their practices. And she says, there's something fundamentally wrong with spending more and more of our our life simply trying to prolong it. The meaning of life must involve more than the lengthening of life. Now, my concern as I read about this and read the, the critiques is it's changing our understanding of what it means to be well. Now this critique came out a few years ago also by a man named Atul Gawande who is a physician and professor at Harvard Medical School and he wrote a best-selling book, it's actually quite good, uh, called Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End. And he indicts the medical establishment that doesn't know what to do with death and dying. And his thesis is, there's no treatment for mortality. (laughs) Nevertheless, this hasn't stopped us from making mortality a medical experience. And he writes, and I quote, lacking a coherent view of how people might live successfully all the way to their very end, we have allowed our fates to be controlled by the imperatives of medicine, technology, and strangers. Now, as I started thinking about this based on our text and I realized, you know, looking up, what does the Bible say about well? I looked up lots of verses, it appears a lot more than I thought it would, but I was really struck with the Apostle John's prayer for his friend Gaius. It's in the book of 3 John and the first three verses. He says to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health, as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Now I think this gets more to a uh, theological and biblical meaning of wellness. To live in accordance with the truth, in our case, with the truth about Christ, knowing the story of Christ, his cross, resurrection, ascension, and presence at the right hand of God the Father is the proper context for determining whether or not we're doing well as human beings. The phrase, get well soon, will ring hollow to a man on his deathbed. And yet for Christians, this whole idea of dying well is not a contradiction in terms. It's just the opposite. The Puritans and the early church They wrote entire manuals on what was called the Ars moriendi, the art of dying. Indeed, one of the most important things we should learn from Jesus is how to die well. And Paul was an exemplary disciple of Jesus, taking up his cross daily, which is why he could declare, 1 Corinthians 15, I die every day. Now this only makes sense In light of another statement that Paul makes, found in Philippians 1.21, our key verse for today. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Discipleship is indeed the process of making people well, but a gospel wellness, a wellness of the soul and resurrection of the body which is a far cry from what's being offered up by the high priests of the modern wellness culture, who I think have so infiltrated American Christianity that we have functionally changed Paul's statement to read, for me to live is gain and to die is Christ. And if we do that, the Apostle Paul would say we're missing out, our expectations are far too low. You see, our expectations for this life have become far higher than our expectations for the next life. And Paul's saying we have it backwards. And if that's the case, then we need to get turned around. And to do that, we need to take a closer look at Paul's expectations. Paul's expectations, verses 18 through 20. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, this meaning, Remember, he's in prison. He's chained to a Roman guard. Verse 20, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be uh, at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So it may be time to reset our own expectations and align them with the Apostle Paul's words here in Philippian 1. If we back up to last week's Sermon, uh, we would be the first to consider uh, his disappointing uh, surroundings. If you remember, Paul encourages the believers back in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What has happened to him is referring to his imprisonment and all the terrible things that Paul has gone through. And can you imagine getting this letter? You're in the church and Paul's writing this letter from his imprisonment, and you're getting this letter, and uh, it's not gonna say having a great time, wish you were here. Um, But it's probably gonna say something like thinking of you during this difficult time and praying for you in the days ahead. And I think if we got that, we'd be like, wait, you're in prison and you're praying for me. Paul should be discouraged by his circumstances, but instead, He's encouraging others. What did he expect? Second, he has these disappointing relationships, not just the circumstances. Again, last week we wrote in verses 15 and 17, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So there's this group of people, they're opposed to Paul's ministry. They celebrate his imprisonment. And now they're preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. And so how does Paul react to that disappointing news? Verse 18, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You think Paul would be discouraged at rivals who are opposing and undermining his ministry, but instead he rejoices. What did he expect? Third, he has sort of a foreboding and possibly disappointing future. The end of verse 18, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul's not fooling himself. He knows that at any moment, Caesar could give the order and he could hear the footsteps of guards coming down the hall to execute him. He knew this was a very real possibility, but he's confident that even this means deliverance. Facing an impending execution, Paul should be disappointed, but instead he has hope. What did he expect? Well, Paul has one expectation. We see it in verse 20. He says, As it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. We can be patient when our eager expectation is to glorify God, because life will always give us new opportunities to honor Christ. That's Paul's eager expectation, for Christ to be honored no matter what. And because Paul's eager expectation is for Jesus to be glorified in his surroundings, the prison is transformed from a place of detention, you might say, to a place of deployment. Paul's sent there to preach the gospel. His expectation to honor Christ has turned his prison into a pulpit. And because Paul's eager expectation is for Jesus to be glorified in his future, his impending execution is transformed from Rome putting him to death to God raising him to life. How does Paul overcome all of these discouragements? By having one expectation. Christ will be honored. And so as we worship Christ, may he give us this expectation. May he rewire our hearts so that our expectation is that Christ will be honored in our worship service and in the lives of those doing the worshiping. And because Paul wanted to honor Christ with courage and without shame, it creates a dilemma for him. He ends verse 20 by saying, whether by life or by death. And that's Paul's dilemma. That's the second blank there, verses 21 to 24, Paul's dilemma. Sometimes this predicament is referred to in terms of being caught on the horns of a dilemma. It comes from the word lemma, it means something that's taken for granted. And a double lemma is called a dilemma. And the picture invoked is that of uh, facing a mad bull charging towards you, and finding that if you try to seize hold of one horn, the bull is simply gonna toss you with the other. That's the horns of a dilemma. And as Paul was writing, I didn't know that, actually, I had to look that up. As Paul is writing, he's facing a dilemma. He's wondering whether it would be better to die in which case he knew that he would be with Christ, or to carry on living, which would mean he could continue to preach the gospel and bring much joy to his friends in Philippi and elsewhere. So he has the same kind of problem as a man facing the charge from the mad bull, except in Paul's case, both of the options promise blessing instead of disaster. And he's so anxious about this that he almost cried out, starting at verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account." So even though he's debated the alternatives, he knew the answer didn't lay in his own hands, or even in those of his captors, the outcome rested with the Lord who controls all things. And either way, in the end, Paul expects to be saved. So let's work through this as this is the heart of the passage. At the close of this last section, Paul makes this rather audacious statement. It doesn't really matter whether he lives or dies. Either way, Christ would be honored. And if seeing Christ honored Uh, was really the most important thing in our lives, how would that change our priorities and our perspectives? What would it do to your outlook for the future? Well, this section tackles these questions. It focuses on the practical implications of life and death, aside from what we think and feel. So the big idea for this section is this phrase, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, for in the phrase, for to me signals that what follows supports his assertion at the end of verse 20. He said that Christ would be honored whether by life or by death, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So again, living means continued work for Christ. Dying means going to be with Christ. And if you think, the simplicity which Paul treats this life and death issue casts things in a whole new light. For to me indicates that Paul's value system reflects his own perspective on the matter. But by implication, it's one that he hopes will adopt as well. To live is Christ, to die is gain. It's obviously easier said than done. So essentially, this section becomes a pro con list, cataloging the advantages and the disadvantages of living versus dying. And Paul gives us insight as to how he weighs out these options before him. Since Christ is honored in either case, and since the gospel is advancing whether he's free or not, essentially the question is should he stay or should he go? And he could have simply told us his choice, but instead he walks us through his decision making process. It's as if he's weighing out each option and putting them on a scale. So starting with verse 21. He tells us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we have some images of the scale. I get the first one there. I think you can see that okay. So, dying, living, gain, Christ. So, he takes up this option uh, in verse 22, qualifying it as in the flesh. This ensures us he's talking about his present life, not about living in a glorified body after he dies. He's talking about his continued ministry in this present life, and he says it means fruitful work for Christ. It's a bonus for the believers that he's ministering to. You can almost hear the Philippians cheering for that option. Then second, in verses 23 and 24, he talks about departing versus remaining. So let's see what that does to the scale. There we go. So you have departing on one side and remaining on the other. So based on the first pair of factors considered, dying sounds like the better option. He no longer have to be in pain, no longer has to suffer imprisonment. He doesn't have to deal with the problems in the church. They wouldn't be his problems anymore. On the other hand, remaining means more fruitful labor for Christ. So which will he choose? At this point, it sounds like he's leaning towards departing as the better thing. At the end of verse 22 and into verse 23, he says, this is not an easy decision. He says, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. Why is it so hard? Well, simply, life is hard. The prospect of departing from the pain, suffering, and hardship of earthly life in order to be with Christ, he says, is far better. Who wouldn't want to be in the heaven Described in Revelation 7, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No hunger or thirst, where God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And to Paul, the prospect of heaven must have sounded much better than his current situation in prison, chained to a Roman guard. And if you think about his life, five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was shipwrecked, he was snake bit. He even got stoned once, like with actual stones. And you can read all that in 2 Corinthians 11. This is a man who knows hardship. If anyone deserves a break, it's the Apostle Paul. It's no wonder that leaving this life to be with Christ has a certain appeal. But there's other considerations to take into account. So let's see the next image on the scale. So now we have being with Christ and fruitful work for Christ. Despite the potential for fruitful work if he remains, departure and being with Christ still has its appeal. After all, if Christ is exalted in either case, if he's honored no matter what, if the gospel advances with or without Paul, why not be with the Lord? Well, these other considerations are raised in verse 24. He mentioned earlier that remaining in the flesh and ministering would be fruitful. And he uses that same term in the flesh to tie back to verse 22. He states that remaining is not just about fruitfulness. He says it's necessary, it's needed for the Philippians' sake. Just as his imprisonment is of less concern than the advancement of the gospel, teaching the Philippians is a higher priority than going to be with Christ. Their needs are what tips the scale in favor of remaining in the flesh. What is better for Paul is secondary. And so even though departing and being with Christ is desirable and better, He chooses a different path. Let's see the last image of the scale. Putting the needs of others changes the picture. It tips the scale. So even though departing and being with Christ is more desirable, and he says far better, Paul chooses a different path. He uses the more attractive option of departing actually as a backdrop for disclosing his decision to remain and to serve the church. Had he jumped ahead to deliver his final verdict without weighing out the options, we wouldn't understand what it cost him. Departing from his circumstances and being with Christ while desirable, he's basically saying that would have been selfish on my part. Instead, he opts for the same kind of sacrificial service that we're going to read about Christ's offering in the next chapter. And after listing the pros and cons of each option, Paul makes known his choice. He could have skipped comparing the options, but that would have obscured the significance of his decision. And so opening his decision-making process challenges us to follow in his path. How do we decide to get involved in a ministry or not? or to minister in such a way to meet someone else's needs or not? Or do we only consider our own interests? What about the interests of others? Convinced that the Philippians' need outweigh his own desire to be with Christ, Paul chooses to remain in order to serve them. And this is his conviction. You can take down the slide. Verses 25 through 26, Paul's conviction says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So the idea of remaining is stated twice in the Greek, and the second reference is adding this sense of continuing to live and serve. He remains for their progress for their progress and joy in the faith. It's very interesting. Paul says your progress and joy in the faith, that's a top priority for the Apostle Paul. We don't often list that for ourselves, our progress and joy in the faith. And to what end? He has this sort of cryptic catch-all phrase, verse 26, that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. He's describing what he wants to see happen in their lives. In light of the preceding reference to progress and joy in the faith, what he wants to see is this confident growth in Christ it will be the result of him remaining in the flesh. And specifically, he wants to return to the Philippian church so he can work with them directly. Paul was caught between a rock and a hard place. He loved Christ and he loved serving him Yet he knew that the moment he died, he would be with his Lord. He would gain him. So he's being squeezed from both directions. Part of him wants to stay here and serve Christ with all his heart. Part of him wants to go and be with his Savior right now. And he knew that if his earthly life continued, it's for the sake of other believers. And as Christians, we need that kind of mindset. Whatever time God gives us here on earth, we need to use it to serve others in his name. So knowing all that, what does to live as Christ really mean? Well, what does it mean? The Greek language doesn't have linking verbs. So what Paul's literally written is, for me to live Christ, to die gain. So for Paul, Philippians 121, that's his life. For me to live is Christ. I think it means at least four things. First, when Christ is our life, we're united to him. This union with Christ is foundational, both for real life and a peaceable death. We must be in Christ by faith. We must be justified by faith in him. And out of that justification, we have a real relationship with him. Our union with Christ should result in communion with Christ. So we're united. Second, it means we find our life in Christ. The aim of daily life is to know Christ, to know him better in his person and work. And Paul's going to come back to this uh, later on in the book. It's what theologians call sanctification, becoming more holy. I want to know him increasingly as my daily teaching prophet, my daily interceding high priest, my daily ruling king, because Jesus is prophet, priest, and king for each and every one of us. Third, it means that we are to love Christ. So we're united to him, we find our life in him, we love Christ. The love of Christ is Paul's great motivator which then made him love Christ even more in return. It's what makes him tick. It's what gets him out of bed in the morning. Every page of his New Testament letters is filled with Christ. Martin Luther put it well when he said, Paul could not keep Christ out of his pen because the Holy Spirit kept Christ in his heart. We love Christ. Finally, to live as Christ means to grow in likeness to Christ. There's a sweet savor of Christ that came from Paul. Read about this, 2 Corinthians 2, he says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. When Christ is our life, we become more like him and developing a servant heart to serve God and to serve others. A loving heart to uh, love God and to really care about all sorts of people, all different kinds of people. And a humble heart that will become gentle and lowly like our Savior. That's what to live as Christ means. Of course, it's easy to say all that. What does it look like? Well, last week I told you about Doug Coiner. This week I'm gonna talk about Bonnie Libby. Those of you who knew Bonnie might as well get the Kleenex out now. Bonnie was a professor of English literature at Patrick Henry College. She died suddenly in 2012. The following comes from the eulogy I delivered at her memorial service on November 5th, 2012. How many of you were there? I quite a few of you. What I said, well, I said a lot of things. I just took part of it. Bonnie lived a life of biblical transparency. As some of you know, Bonnie battled health issues from time to time, and one time she wound up at the Loudon Medical Center, and I found her sitting in one of the examination rooms that make up the vast McMansion, known as the emergency room. One of the things I really don't like about COVID is they don't let me go into the hospital and the emergency rooms and visit people. Some of the places will let me in, but most of them won't yet. And I miss that. It's a wonderful opportunity to be with people. So we're in the ER and I said, we sat there and visited. She explained what was going on and we talked for quite a while. At one point, the ER doctor entered the room and started going over her medical charge and prescribing various treatments and medicines. And the doctor kept looking over at me somewhat suspiciously. And it soon became clear he wasn't comfortable having me in the room. See, he wanted to ask Bonnie some health-related questions. Personal questions. Female questions. Sexuality questions. Questions about possible questionable behavior. And he wasn't sure how to get there. All of a sudden, Bonnie looked at him and said, I'll never forget this. This is my pastor. You can ask me any question you want. I have nothing to hide. And I immediately thought, what a marvelous way to live. We live in a world where people are constantly hiding. They hide their sins, ashamed they'll be found out. They live in a state of hidden guilt and secret shame. They hide our fears and our doubts and our insecurities are worried they're all going to prove true and yet we remain unrelieved when they don't we hide our beliefs wondering what others might think but not Bonnie. she considered the interests of others to be so much more valuable than her own she personified the wisdom of paul who writes seven verses after today's passage Philippians 2.3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And she did that well, perhaps because our own humility pales in comparison. We didn't often notice it, but I can remember her sitting at our dinner table listening to my children when we still had children living at home. tell their tales of what was going on in their lives, the activities of athletics and orchestra. And I can picture Bonnie leaning in with a smile and saying, really, that's fascinating. And then what happened? She was captivated by the stories of those around her. She loved others and put them first. She used to sit over here, and when new folks visited the church, very often she'd be the first person to engage them in conversation. And she was there in the nursery and in Sunday school and various small groups and out visiting people. And I think Bonnie knew better than I of what to live as Christ and to die as gain really meant. And so my prayer for you today is God will turn Bonnie's words into your actions. And you'll be able to look people in the eye and say, you can ask me any question you want. I have nothing to hide. Her hope remained consistently rooted in Christ and his sure word through good times and bad. Christ Jesus holds us safe throughout. In times of joy and peace, in times of suffering and pain, in times of distress and catastrophe, our security rests in Jesus' blood and righteousness. He is the solid rock. All else in life is sinking sand. To commend yourself always into his care because you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. And then you can say with the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if by the sovereign providence of God, he chooses to call you home this week, please say hi to me." I need to stop there. Think about all that. You need to pray. Take a moment to pray and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you. You have spoken to us by your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our savior. God, our father, we bow before you and we confess how easily we're overcome by our desires to live long and to live well. We rarely, if ever, think to die is gain. We usually don't even think to live as Christ. And so by your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would change us, enable us to honor Christ in all we do, whether by life or by death. Grant that we may live like people who are united to Christ, who find our life in Christ, who love Christ, who long to grow in likeness to Christ. So the work in each of us this fall as we learn how to live lives worthy of the gospel. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word and through the book of Philippians draw us ever closer to the one who loves us, your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.